So welcome everybody to this session on the Book of Certainty by Martin Lings. And we've come to chapter five entitled The Gardens of the Heart and the Soul. And what I think I'll do is just read uh, the first two pages, in fact, about half of the chapter. Then I'll stop and I'll see if there are any questions and then we'll carry on. Chapter five, the gardens of the heart and the soul. And for him that feareth the high degree of his Lord, there are two gardens. Therein are two fountains flowing. Therein of every fruit, there are two kinds. Quran 55, 46. 50 and 52. So what Dr. Lings has done here from the Surah Ar-Rahman is he's given three verses, not consecutively, but separated by a few verses each. The 46, man khafa maqama rabbihi jannatan. That's 46. So he's translated the maqam of, of God as the high degree of his Lord. So it's a beautiful translation. We should take note of that translation of maqam, uh, normally translated as station, because it's the place where you stand. Maqam, it's a place name, and it's from where qayyumiya, where yaqumu, qama yaqumu. You stand up. So normally it's translated as the station, the high station. But here Dr. Linz has given us the word a degree, the high degree of his Lord. There are two gardens. Therein are two fountains flowing. Fihima jannatun tajariyan. That's verse 50. In both of these gardens, there are fountains flowing. And take careful note of the word flowing here because it's going to be very important to distinguish what the fountains are doing in these two lower gardens compared to what the fountains are doing in the two higher gardens. The gardens, if you remember, of the spirit <coughs> and the essence. <coughs> Then the final verse, therein of every fruit, there are two kinds. In those two gardens, there is every kind of fruit, but every kind of fruit, there are two kinds of those fruits. And again, we have to pay careful attention to this because he's going to comment on it in this chapter. So now we come on to Dr. Lings's text itself. The Garden of Eden, which for primordial man was the macrocosm, corresponds to the inward paradise of his soul. But since his soul has in its heart the eye of certainty, which transcends its other elements, it may also be said to consist of two paradises. 
The higher of these, the garden of the heart, will then correspond to Eden's innermost precinct, where flows the fountain of immortality. While the lower, the garden of the soul, will correspond to the rest of the earthly garden. Together, these two inward paradises make up the degree of human perfection. And since this degree marks the first stage in the traveler's journey, it is evident that the fear spoken of as leading to these paradises is the very fear which was said by Solomon to be the beginning of wisdom. And in the words of the commentator, fear is one of the qualities of the soul, one of its phases when it is lit with the light of the heart. So here we're talking about this talking about this quality of fear, the one who has real fear uh, in the sense of awe and being kind of awestruck, almost like with Heba. You're awestruck and therefore your faculties are oriented to that reality, not just in the lower sense of being frightened or afraid or something. It's much more a quality of uh, orientation with an awestruck awareness of the majestic dignity of the absolute and of the quote fear of doing or being something that is not in conformity with that so that's why solomon says fear of god is the beginning of wisdom and it's also a hadith <clears throat> that that makhafa is the in fact, in this hadith, it, Ra'as is the, the head, the chief, the capital, the height of wisdom. So here, Makhafa is not like just the beginning of wisdom, but that Makhafa, that awestruck quality that you have in the face of the absolute, and that it's almost like a bewilderment, Hayra, as well as Hayba, that you're awestruck and you're bewildered. And Ibn Arabi refers to that station, not just as the beginning of wisdom, but he says this is the highest maqam, the highest degree, the highest spiritual station of the orafa. And they go through all of the other stations of love and knowledge and so on until they come back to what apparently is the beginning, which is now the final end that you're so bewildered that it's, it's, it's you're awestruck again. And there's a kind of fear in the metaphysical sense and not just the emotional sense. So I'll carry on. Like the difference between the two higher paradises, the difference between the garden of the heart and the garden of the soul is shown by the fruits which are found in each. The commentary is as follows. Now, this is the commentary of Abrazai Kashan. Therein of every fruit of the delicious objects of the perception, there are two kinds, of which the one is particular, being known and wanted, whereas the other is universal and strange. This word wanted, it's an old English word, it's something to which you're accustomed. 
wanted. You're used to it. It's known and you're used to it. It's a particular thing that you're known and that you're used to. Whereas the other is universal and strange, strange in the sense of unknown, unaccustomed, a harib in that way. For verily every universal idea that the heart perceiveth hath a particular image in the soul, nor is there anything perceived by the soul that hath not its archetype in the heart. So these outward objects of perception in their particularity, in the way that you know them, that is what your soul corresponds to because the soul itself is particular and you know particular things with your particular soul. But this, the heart contains the archetype of the image that the soul perceives. The heart contains the archetype and that's why the soul can perceive and recognize particular objects because within its own heart, it contains the archetype of those things. So there's archetype symbol or archetype to particular thing corresponding to heart, which knows the universal archetypes and the soul, which knows the particular things. That's the end of the extract from Kashan. Now back to Dr. Ling's. As regards the fountains, it will be remembered that those of the two higher paradises are described not as flowing like those of the heart and the soul, but as gushing. This is a very important point that's coming up now. If you remember, the gushing is not so in the two higher paradises that come later, Mindunihima Jannatan, Mudhamatan, Fihima Ainani, Nabakatan. So this gushing of the two higher fountains in the higher paradises is to be contrast, contrasted with flowing, Tajariyan, the ordinary word for flowing. So, in other words, the fountain of the spirit is not represented as drawing its waters from the garden of the essence. But, like the supreme fountain, as spouting forth of itself. So, this Nadakhatan in the two higher paradises, obviously the, the higher of the two, which is the garden of the essence, then the garden of the spirit, Dr. Lind is saying here, he's saying that these fountains seem to be gushing forth of their, from themselves. But this must not be taken to imply, however, that the spirit is in any sense independent of the essence, but rather that there is a break of continuity between the supreme paradise and all that lies beneath it. It's like between the garden of the essence, which is like the absolute, pure infinitude, and everything beneath, there is this incommensurability, an abyss, a gulf, no way in which the mind can conceive of how that gulf could be breached between the pure absolute and everything that is other than the pure absolute. In view of the closeness of earthly continuity, the same might be said of every paradise, but compared with the ultimate break of all connections whatsoever, 
there is nonetheless a certain relative continuity between the three lower paradises, and this is expressed in the relationship between their fountains. So there's the three lower paradises that have a subtle continuity, even though there is a break of sorts, an uh, existential break of sorts between the, the higher two and the earthly paradise. But as compared with the radical incommensurability, which means lack of common measure between the garden of the essence and everything else, that difference between earth and heaven is something relative. Thus, with regard to the gardens of the heart and the soul, the verse, there are two fountains flowing, is commented. And this is now the commentary of Kashani, flowing from the garden of the spirit. So it's flowing from the garden of the spirit into the gardens of the heart and the soul. Now, water, this is where it becomes very, this chapter suddenly becomes very much more to do with spiritual perception here and now for all of us, rather than just being a description of eschatological realities. Water, in virtue of its transparency and its spontaneous motion, is parallel to light as a symbol of spiritual knowledge. And although we have already mentioned the symbolism of light, and although we hope to consider it more fully in a later chapter, it will perhaps be as well to touch upon it here insofar as it may help to explain the differences between the four fountains. So now we're going into a discussion of the symbolism of light in terms of its similarity with the symbolism of water, because both in virtue of their transparency on the one hand and their, what Dr. Lins calls spontaneous motion, they can be compared to knowledge. So now we're going to go into a discussion of these fountains of water gushing, flowing, and how they can help us to understand the nature of spiritual perception of knowledge. It is light itself which corresponds to the fountain of the essence. Pure light, Noor, that's the, the garden of the essence. The fountain of the garden of the spirit, that is, the spirit itself, is symbolized by the sun. The fountain of the garden of the heart, which according to the commentary is the eye of the universal perceptions. Remember, we had that the heart sees things in their universal aspect and the soul sees things in their particular aspect. The fountain of the garden of the heart has already been identified with the eye of certainty. Remember in Arabic, it's nice play on this because ain means both eye and fountain, as well as essence, archetype, and so on. So the garden of the heart corresponds to the eye of certainty, the ain al-yaqeen. And this is nothing other than the fountain of immortality. It is symbolized by the moon. 
So the garden of the spirit is symbolized by the sun. This fountain that comes from the garden of the spirit, the water that flows is like the light that radiates from the sun. And in the garden of the heart, the water that flows in that fountain is like the light that is reflected by the moon from the sun. So this is a beautiful analogy to help us to understand the relationship between the two sets of gardens. The light of the sun coming from the garden of the spirit and its fountain water, which in its transparency and spontaneous motion is like a radiation of the light of the sun. And they both represent spiritual knowledge. And then in the garden of the heart, which receives this light, its fountain and its flowing water is like the light that emanates from the moon, which is a reflection from the light of the higher luminary, which is that of the sun, the sun of the spirit. It is symbolized by the moon. And indeed, the light flowing from this fountain may well be said to gush forth from the sun and then to flow from it to the moon. Whence it flows to various objects, which in their turn, according to their aptitude, may serve to reflect it again. And any such point of contact between a ray of moonlight and a reflective object may be taken as a symbol of the fountain of the soul. <clears throat> now, this is how it becomes extremely beautiful. We have this image of the sun of the Supreme Spirit, which renders manifest, spiritually and metaphysically speaking, the light of the essence. The light of the essence is always in this supreme darkness, it's unknown through its superabundance of light and it's contained infinitely within itself. But insofar as the hidden treasure of the essence loves to make itself known, it does so through its self-manifestation as the spirit, the logos, the ruh, the archangel, what, however you want to symbolize it. And that spirit, the ruh, the garden of the spirit, the fountain of the spirit is symbolized by the sun. The sun's light streams, it gushes forth. And then it illuminates the moon, which is in the garden of the heart. The heart receives that light, just like the light of the moon comes from the sun. And then the moon itself casts light, but it's now a flowing light, on reflective objects on earth anything on earth that can uh, absorb and reflect back the light of the moon. And those objects that reflect back the light of the moon are in the garden of the soul. So you see how beautifully we can understand. At first, this is extremely complicated, reading this just straight off. Very complex. It's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? But then when you see it in terms of the imagery, it all suddenly makes sense, become very, very easily intelligible and inspiringly so. 
And then all the objects on earth in the garden of the soul are reflective to the extent that they reflect the light of the moon, which itself is reflecting the light of the sun. You see something of the moon and the sun, the spirit and the heart through everything around you. And this is where you're beginning to see what Huon calls the metaphysical transparency of phenomena. So, this fountain, the fountain of the soul, is defined in the commentary as the eye of the particular perceptions. Remember, we had this earlier. And it is, in fact, none other than the law of certainty, the ilm al yaqi For this law, this ayn al yaqi this ilm al yaqi is indeed the source of the true man's clear perception of the particular known and wanted objects. Remember, we had that earlier, things that are known and you're accustomed to them. That is that is the, the source of the true knowledge of those things comes from this perception of them as reflections of the light of the moon, symbolizing the knowledge in the heart. It is his means of understanding their true nature. For just as the fountain of immortality, which springs in his heart, draws its waters from the garden of the spirit, the fountain of the law of certainty, which springs in his mind, the ilm al-yaqeen, which springs from the mind, draws its waters from the garden of the heart, so that through it he is able to refer the particular objects of perception back to their universal archetypes. Absolutely crucial here. <clears throat> and it's so important to appreciate at this point the imagery of flowing water, how the flow, the ebb and the flow, you might say, of the waters from these fountains is such a beautiful image helping us to understand the movement from the particular to the universal. We can make this movement from the particulars around us back to their universal archetypes by means of a kind of flow of spiritual intuition, by a kind of reabsorption of our spiritual perception back into the archetypes, whence from which those particular things flowed in the first place. So it's like entering back into the ebbing of those objects after they have flown from, they've been flowing down from the higher with and as the higher waters. And we put ourselves into that slipstream but now going back up vertically in this gravitational attraction of those universal archetypes vis-a-vis -vis the particular objects that manifest them. So that through it, through the, uh, now let's just start a bit further back again. The fountain of the law of certainty, the fountain of the ilm al-yaqeen, which springs in his mind, draws its waters from the garden of the heart, so that through it, he is able, through the garden of the heart, 
is able to refer objects of to take delight in them, not merely for themselves, but also in that they are the shadows or images of higher realities. It is thus the presence of this fountain in the garden of the soul which gives full flavor. Look at how beautifully he says this. Full flavor to the fruits. That is to the particular objects perceived by the senses, by revealing them to him in the fullness of their true nature. It's a really beautiful way of putting this. Giving full flavor to those fruits of paradise by virtue of relating them back to their universal archetypes. It's the very opposite of what the worldly person thinks, that for me to do full justice to these beautiful fruits on earth, all these wonderful experiences I can have, I can taste, for example, the, the coffee that God has made, this wonderful taste of coffee, and the worldly person says, in order to do justice to this gift from God, have as much coffee and love the aroma and the taste and have a bit of chocolate with it and so on and so forth to enhance this flavor of this wonderful drink that God has given, which is halal, which is this, which is that, which helps the mind to be focused. Whereas what we're told here is almost the exact opposite, that the only way you can really extract from the coffee bean the fullness of the flavor that it's giving you is if in your heart you can flow back to the archetype of all Volk, of all things that you can taste and enjoy, back to the higher level. So in fact, on the earthly plane, it can translate into actually not partaking of the taste, not taking a cup of coffee, abstaining from it, precisely because you have a higher taste, a deeper taste, a universal taste of something of which the coffee is just a minor manifestation on this lower plane. So I'll just read this again. That is to the particular objects perceived by the senses by revealing them to him in the fullness of their true nature. Now here, let's go from the rather prosaic example of coffee to the more uh, appropriate one of flowers, the experience of the beauty of the colors of flowers. And here I would recommend that you read what Dr. Link says about the symbolism of the triad of the primary colors in his book, Symbol and Archetype, where he says that the perception of the difference, the distinctiveness of the red, of the gold, of the blue, your perception of the distinctiveness of them is much greater on the principal level than on the purely manifested level, even though it's difficult to conceive of that. But when you walked into Dr. Lins's garden and you saw the way he had arranged the flowers, particularly with the stress on the gold, on the red, on the blue, 
with the green, of course, as the background, primary colors coming straight forward. This is, we can understand what he's saying here perhaps more deeply if we think about the experience of particular objects of beauty, such as flowers, and through the eye of his understanding, through the eye of his perception, that what he would be seeing through these beautiful particular objects, these flowers and their colors and their distinctiveness, would be, and he would get a much, in his particular, sorry, in other words, it is, uh, the, to, I'll read it again. The presence of this fountain, that is the fountain of the garden of the heart, in the garden of the soul, gives full flavor to the fruits, that is, to the particular objects perceived by the senses. By revealing them, the particular objects, revealing the particular objects to him in the fullness of their true nature. In other words, it is in virtue of this fountain that even in his perception of these particular objects, he remains always conscious of the spirit. And this is what, again, Dr. Lings is describing his own soul here, saying that even while he's marveling at the beauty of the flowers in his garden, he's not taken away from the spirit towards the in the direction of the particularities of this or that flower, but rather the particularities and their beauties, make him even more conscious of the spirit because they reveal to him the fullness of their nature in the spirit. And he can perceive all of this intuitively with the eye of his heart because of the presence of the heart, of the spirit, down into his own soul. So he's able to rise up to the source of these particularities in his vision, of the beauty of those particularities, of the particular object. So it's the beauty that relates him to a higher degree of acuity, of perception, of the beauty of the source where all these objects flow. So we're nearly at the end of this chapter. I'll just read rather quickly the last page here. The line of continuity between the gardens of the spirit, the heart, and the soul, represented by the unbroken flow of water between them, is none other than the intellect. A line of continuity between the garden of the spirit, the garden of the heart, the garden of the soul, this line of continuity is nothing other than the intellect, the unbroken flow of water between them. But the pure intellect may not be said to descend lower than the garden of the heart. So why does he say it stops at the heart? Why does the intellect come from the essence down to the spirit, then to the heart? And then he says, but it doesn't go any further than the heart. Why not? As to the waters which flow between the two lowest fountains, that is the garden of the heart and soul, they, they represent those intellectual faculties 
in which the intellect has become partially veiled by the psychic substance. So now this psyche, this soul, psychic substance, <clears throat> the individuality, the character, the personality, everything that makes me, me, this is an individual coagulated substance of psychic coagulations. All of this stuff of which I am made, unfortunately, veils the intellect. So those intellectual faculties in which the intellect has become partially veiled by the psychic substance. These are the faculties of intellectual intuition. And they are the mediators between the reason which rules the soul and the pure intellect which rules the heart. So in between the soul and the heart, the soul is dominated by reason and the psychic substance. The heart is dominated by the intellect. But between the two, there are these intellectual intuitions, but they're partially veiled by what's streaming up from below. It's like uh, you know, the opposite of the downward flow of fountains. It's like the gushing up of all this psychic rubbish that is actually veiling the intellect, the intellectual intuitions that are partially connecting the realm of the soul with the realm of the heart. This is and danger. This is where the Jihad al-Akbar takes place, precisely in that intermediate domain on the level of the soul. These are the faculties of intellectual intuition, and they are the mediators between the reason which rules the soul and the pure intellect which rules the heart. Their knowledge is more certain than that of the law, the ilm al but less certain than that of the eye, the ayn al So the ayn al is higher, the ilm al is lower, these intellectual intuitions are in the middle. They may also be called the heavenly desires, since they are turned in spontaneous inclination towards the next world just as desires in the ordinary meaning are turned towards this world. So ordinary desires in the soul that are turned to this world are ones that lead away from these intellectual intuitions. But when those desires are turned towards God and the hereafter, they move in the right direction, even though they're still partially veiled by the psychic substance. Of their intellectual intuitions in that respect, they are oriented towards the true. But insofar as they are partially veiled by the desires and other things of the psychic substance, they are uh, dragged down towards desires of this world. In one sense, these intermediary waters form part of the garden of the soul which is in fact incomplete without them, depending upon them for its fountain, which is its most essential feature. It is thus made up of two kinds of elements, of intu intuitive faculties which are turned in desire towards the garden of the heart and which are perpetually satisfied by the light which comes from it, and of earthly desires which are turned towards the particular objects of perception in the outer world and which are ready to be satisfied according to the possibilities afforded by outward conditions.
It is, in fact, this readiness to be satisfied, this full development, and not the actual satisfaction itself, which distinguishes the soul of the true man from that of the fallen man. Indeed, it may be that the earthly desires are only satisfied within certain limitations. Now, here we have a footnote. The garden of the soul depends for its full realization on the perfection of the fruits as well as on that of the fountain, so that in a sense it is only possible for the true man to possess fully the garden of the soul during his life if he is living in the Garden of Eden, that is, during the primordial age. Otherwise, this paradise may only be enjoyed to the full after death, when the perfect soul is said to abide in a prolongation of the earthly state, which is like itself incorporeal and not subject to decay, retaining always its primordial perfection. The term garden of the soul is in fact usually taken to refer to such a prolongation of the human state after death. So you see, what he's saying here is that it's the readiness to be satisfied by particular objects that distinguishes the true man's state of realization from a actual satisfaction of all of these desires on the plane of the soul because the actual satisfaction presupposes a perfection in what would be the garden of eden where everything outwardly is satisfying every need for satisfaction inwardly and that is the paradisal possibility so that on earth the true man as, as dr Lins is referring to here what distinguishes the soul of the true man from that of the fallen man is in fact the readiness to be satisfied and not the actual satisfaction itself because earthly desires are only satisfied within certain limitations. The objects may not be there in the actual earthly realm. So it's only in the Garden of Eden that all of the outward objects satisfy the inward needs that we have for satisfaction in the soul. So I'll just read that again, the, the footnote. The garden of the soul depends for its full realization on the perfection of the fruits as well as on that of the fountain. So it is only possible for the true man to possess fully the garden of the soul during his life if he is living in the garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden has the fruits as well as the fountains. The fountains are spiritual perception, spiritual knowledge, light that relates the particular back to universal. But the fruits, the actual things, the particular objects, to be there to satisfy the soul, in actual satisfaction, they will not be there in this fallen world. They will only be there in the Garden of Eden. But this does not apply to the heavenly leanings of the intuitive faculties. This is the last sentence now. 
But this does not apply to the heavenly leanings of the intuitive faculties. Remember those intuitions that connect the realm of the soul dominated by reason and the realm of the heart dominated by the intellect. What is in between these two are intellectual aspirations, leanings, desires for heaven, for God. So what he's saying here is that this does not apply to the heavenly leanings, what he has said. Let me just reread this last sentence before so we can get this contrast clearly in our minds. And then I think after this, we'll stop there and um, we'll have one question. But um, as you can probably hear, my voice is giving out on me now and I, I need to go and get a drink. Um, it is, in fact, this readiness to be satisfied, this full development, and not the actual satisfaction itself, which distinguishes the soul of the true man from that of the fallen man. Indeed, it may be that the earthly desires are only satisfied within certain limitations. But this does not apply to the heavenly leanings of the intuitive faculties, and still less does it apply to the garden of the heart itself, which is above all earthly conditions, being even above death, as the name of its fountain shows. <clears throat> So still less does it apply to the garden of the heart, which is above all earthly conditions, being even above death, as the name of its fountain shows. Now, I don't know what the name, because insofar as I remember in the Surah Ar-Rahman, the names of the fountain, it just says that the two fountains are gushing. So maybe that's what... It means that it's the gushing nature, the, the fountain of immortality. It's permanently gushing forth with life. So it's above death. And these heavenly leanings of the intuitive faculties are, as it were, all, they will always find their satisfaction in the measure that that heavenly aspiration prevails over the veil constituted by the individuality, the psychic substance imposing itself upon the, the heavenly desires. But those intuitions, and this is, I suppose, a good point at which to end in terms of a practical point, our soul being dominated by reason, our heart is dominated by the intellect, but in terms of practical spirituality, what we are constantly doing in orienting our meditation, our reflection towards the gardens. Oh, thank you very much. I needed some water yeah, from, so. yeah. from the fountain of immortality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alhamdulillah.
So on, to end on a practical note, where we are in our current situation as um, seekers of the heart, our reason that dominates our soul is also allied to our imagination, our intuition, and our memory, the four faculties of the soul. And the intuition is the bridge that enables us to go from the level of knowledge fashioned by the soul to the level of knowledge opened up by the heart, the fountain of the, the heart, the fountain of spiritual knowledge, wherein the, the light of the moon, reflecting the light of the sun from the spirit, is shining down on us. And one thing I'd like to finish on, a note I'd like to finish on here, is what Dr. Linz used to say about the Quranic descriptions of paradise. He said that these descriptions are marvelous and they are more, you might say, detailed than in any other scripture of Revelation. But he said it's almost as if these descriptions of paradise are there in order to allow the imagination to open out to them, to focus upon those images. Remember, imagination and image. The images of paradise are there for the imagination of the soul to work upon, to reflect upon, to meditate upon, and to open up the whole, the totality of the soul to the beauty of the images being revealed by God for this dimension of the soul. And one might add that it's one of the reasons that one of the reasons why these descriptions of paradise, these images of paradise, make such a profound spiritual impact upon our soul is precisely because of what Dr. Lins is talking about in his book, that the gardens depicted in the Quran, the gardens of paradise, different degrees and levels of paradise, are all to be found within the degrees of depth of our own heart and spirit. So this is why we recognize, not just recognize, we recognize with our heart what we've already known, because we were, and in a certain sense are, in our innermost reality, we are still in that paradise from which we've only fallen in appearance. And so the soul, with all of its psychic complications, being dominated by reason, nonetheless has openings through imagination and intuition, and not just memory in the ordinary empirical sense, but memory in the sense of thikr, of a kind of supracognitive recollection of what we were what we still are in our inmost, depth, inmost depths. And that's why the descriptions of paradise coming from Revelation reveal to us or uncover for us, disclose for us, it's a kind of kashf, al-mahjoub. It is a disclosure of what is covered over by a hijab 
the hijab of the nafs. And so that revelation reveals, reminds, recollects, discloses, uncovers what we already know to be our true inmost reality. If only we could liberate ourselves from the veils with which we falsely identify ourselves, the veils of this individuality, this desire, this imagination, speculation, whatever else it may be. So I, I'll stop on that note. And um, I, I think, uh, Dr. Reza, because I know that the... Um, the forty No, not just that, the break and fast very, uh, very soon. Oh, you're We're breaking fast. Side. What time are you breaking fast? This is just an hour left, I think. So maybe we can... Yes, but we can continue if you want. Pardon? We can continue if you if you uh, want to continue. Well, if there's if there's any questions, I just take perhaps I just take one question. There is any? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good morning, uh, Dr. Kazmi, and uh, thank you for explaining with such lucidity the profound metaphysics and uh, symbolism uh, expounded by Dr. Links. So my question is: mention was made of intellect. Yeah. So am I audible? Uh, not really. Uh, can I? Uh, I'll just put that. Okay. Yeah. Try. Try now. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, so uh, mention was made of uh, the word intellect. Yeah. Am I now? Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, how to reconcile uh, the uh, mention of the word intellect in two traditions like for example in the islamic tradition uh, uh, there is a saying of the prophet muhammad upon him be peace and blessings that the first uh, thing that god allah created was the intellect and in the christian tradition uh, i mean uh, i'm mentioning meister eckhart's statement that uh, there is something in man that is uncreated and uncreatable, and that is the intellect. So, uh, so which aspect of intellect uh, is Dr. Lynch speaking about in this book? Is, well, is it the uncreated or the created, according well, to Islamic tradition? Well, yeah. going, going back to your very interesting question, that the creation of the intellect, there's also... Um, as saying that the first thing that God created was the ruh, the spirit. The first thing that God created was the pen, the qalam. You have all of these sayings of the Prophet, in which the first creation is given. He also said the first thing God created was my spirit, my own, you know, uh, my reality, my haqiqah. So when Eckhart, on the other hand, talks about the intellect as being increatum et increabile, hoc est, you know, aliquid est in anima, increatum et increabile, et hoc est intellectus, that there is something in the soul that is uncreated and uncreatable, and this is the intellect. He went on to say, if the whole soul were like it, it would be uncreated. This refers to the inherent 
duodimensionality. I was about to say ambiguity or ambivalence, but I think duodimensionality is a better way of putting it. There are two dimensions to the spirit, to the intellect, to the Mohammedan reality, to the Logos, and this is expressed very clearly in dogmatic terms in the Christological dogma, which refers to Jesus as having two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, but in one undivided personhood. This is something the mind can hardly make any sense of. And this is where reason itself has to be crucified on the cross, where the mental carapace of rationalistic alternativism, either this or that, has to be cracked, has to be broken. Eckhart said, if you want to reach the essence, you have to break the form. One of the ways in which the form needs to be broken is the formalism of rationality and categorization that will say either black or white, either it's created or it's uncreated. This is where in the Quran it says, Yes, that they ask you about the spirit. What is it? Say back to them, the ruh is from the command of God. You don't know much about it. It's not something that you can actually think about with rational concepts. The ruh that in one sense is created, in another sense is uncreated. The intellect in one sense can be called created, in another sense is uncreated. Meaning it's uncreated in its essence created in its formal manifestation as soon as the intellect makes contact with as soon as these waters of the fountains that flow from the spirit from the essence ultimately to the spirit to the heart to the soul as soon as we're talking about the contact between that pure water and the mud of the soul that mud represents the created element and the pure water represents the uncreated. So in one respect, you're talking about the intellect in the soul as being uncreated because it is the source of that pure uncreated light manifesting in the soul. But insofar as that light is encased by the darkness of human individual formal substance, it becomes a subject to the contingencies of creation. So it becomes, quote, created, the created intellect. So these are just words that I'm trying to put together to convey the extreme complexity of the subject and the inability of the created intellect to understand its own uncreated essence by virtue of any created elements such as formal thought or language. It's impossible. All that can happen is that certain formulations can allow the mind, the reason, the created intellect within us to, as it were, remove the, just like Shuan has given this image, that when you're in a dark room and you open up a shutter and the sun comes into the room, 
have you created the light of that sun that comes into the room? Have you created the illumination? No, you have just removed a barrier preventing the pre-existing light from coming in. And that is all that we can do with our activities, whether mental or contemplative or spiritual. All we're doing is we are working upon polishing up the heart which contains the uncreated intellect. We're polishing up that heart so that in removing the rust of our own created elements, of our own sins, of our own faults, of our own forgetfulness, in polishing that up with the divine name or with the scriptural revelation, whatever it be, that is the weapon that God has put in our hands from heaven, the weapon from heaven to remove the rust of the heart, whatever it may be, we are bringing to light something that's already there, but it's not through our action that that's created. It's through the pre-existing grace of God that that knowledge is present in our hearts. And all we can do with our mind and our soul and our will and our effort and our concentration and our aspiration is remove the barriers that prevent knowledge from being itself. And here the Imam Shadili uh, gives us a very important ishara in one of his, his most famous dua, his, his Hizbal Bahr. At the beginning of the Hizbul Bahr of the Imam Shadili, we have this statement. We have, Ya Ali, Ya Adim, Ya Halim, Ya Alim, Anta Rabbi, Ailmuka Hasbi, Banyamar Rabbu Rabbi, Banyamar Hasbu Hasbi. He's saying that, the, the, that you are my Lord and knowledge of you as my Lord is sufficient for me. That's my hasp. It's enough for me. And then he asks for Isma. He says, Nas'aluka al-Ismata fil harakati wa sakanati wal kalimati wal iradati wal khatarat mina shukuki wa dununi wal awhami satirati lil qulub an mutala'atil ghuyub. That's an amazing statement if we stop to reflect upon it. He's saying to God, Give me Isma, give me protection against all of them. In my movements, my harakat, in my stillnesses, my sakanat, fil harakat wa sakanat, wal kalimat in my speech, wal khatarat, wal iradat. So from my outward actions to my inward ones, give me protection against it so that even in my willing and my thinking, wal khatarat, مِنَ الشُّكُوكِ وَالظُّنُونِ وَالْأَوْحَامِ سَاتِرَةِ لِلْقُلُوبِ عَمْ مُطَالَعَةِ الْغُيُوبِ Give me protection in my very, in every single one of my thoughts against those doubts, شُكُوكِ وَالظُّنُونِ and speculations, وَالْأَوْحَامِ delusions. Protect me in my thinking against those doubts and delusions and illusions and imaginings, which do what? Asatira lil qulub an mutala'atil ghuyub, which prevent the hearts from having the light of knowledge rising up 
Tulu, like the Tulu Shams, the, the dawn of the sun, which is going to give luminous, luminous knowledge regarding Ghuyub, the things that are hidden. Meaning that the natural state of the human soul, of the human spirit, is one in which the actions, the stillnesses, the thoughts, desires, iradad, every single aspect of us, outward movements and stillnesses, inward volitions and thoughts, all of them are completely protected against those imaginings and delusions and distortions that prevent knowledge of the unseen from rising up like the sun, like dawn in our hearts. So the natural state is one in which there are no shukuk wal dunun wal auham, which are satira, which are covering over the constant rising up of the sun of knowledge in our hearts. That's the natural state of the human being in the Edenic state. So we in our fallen state are calling to God to give us protection against all of these doubts and delusions and imaginings that prevent the rise of knowledge from taking place in our hearts. So there's a long-winded answer to a question, but um, as I say, the the, the bridge between reason and the intellect that will help us if we cross this bridge with spiritual intuition that is, is deepened and refined by our reflection, meditation, invocation, contemplation, then our spiritual intuition, which is that bridge linking the soul dominated by reason, and the heart dominated by the intellect, that spiritual intuition will help us to understand how, in a wordless way, in a way that goes beyond formal thought and language, how we can understand this mysterious relationship between the created and the uncreated dimensions of the intellect. But it's the spiritual intuition that can do that, and no amount of, of words or just idle thought. It's, it's something that's emanating from the soul towards the heart, what Dr. Linz was talking about, an authentic desire for God and the hereafter, which is distinguished from that, those desires that are turned towards the world. So uh, I think we can stop there. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Reza. Thank you. And, um, I just want to quick announcement. So yes. We will, um, um, that will be the last session in April, and we will be back uh, from the second of uh, second week of May. Second, second week, week of May. May. All, all right. right. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much. Okay. Right. Stop recording.